If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It would be acknowledged by the MI6 officer walking past the man with the Safeway bag, who they'd never seen, by the way. They had very little idea what he looked like. They would walk past him and eat a British chocolate bar, either a Mars bar or a Kit Kat. Now, I mean, again, if you made this up in fiction, people would say, nah, that's completely unbelievable. That was Ben McIntyre describing one of the most remarkable espionage stories of the Cold War. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the amazing story of Oleg Godievsky a senior officer in the KGB at the height of the Cold War. He was also, for a number of years, secretly working for MI6. When in 1985 the KGB discovered his betrayal, Gordievsky attempted to do the seemingly impossible, escape from the Soviet Union. Oleg Gordievsky's story is the subject of a new book by the best-selling historical author Ben McIntyre, who spent many hours interviewing the key personnel 
including members of MI6 who've spoken about the incident for the very first time. I met up with Ben at the offices of his publisher Penguin last week to find out more. At what point in Oleg Kordievsky's life did he decide that he wanted to betray his country and why did he decide to do it? I mean, that's the critical question with Oleg Gordievsky because it's a slow evolution. It's not something that happens overnight and it's not something that happens in a linear way either. He doesn't suddenly get the, get the conversion. It's not a sort of sudden, you know, as it were, flash of blinding light. The first clear moment for Oleg, I think, was when he was a student. He was a, a student at the most elite uh, university in, in Moscow. He was an extremely accomplished linguist. And he was sent, in his final year, he went to East Germany um, on a sort of um, training course, really. And he, the day after he arrived in East Berlin, he witnessed the, the building of the Berlin Wall. I mean, the very same morning, bulldozers and the barbed wire and the concrete went up. And for him, I think that was a dramatic demonstration of the kind of hypocrisy that he'd lived under until that point. And he was 18 years old, and here was this physical manifestation of the fact that the, the Soviet Union was telling one thing to its people but actually doing another. I mean, theoretically, under the Soviet Union, that was the anti-fascist wall. It was keeping out, you know, dread capitalism from coming to the Soviet Union. In fact, of course, it was a wall to keep East Germans prisoners in their own country. And that was the first moment. But it was a, one of a series. I think, you know, the next one, the really another critical moment in global affairs that really affected Gordievsky was, was the crushing of the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia. He was in Denmark by that point. And like many young Russians, he, he saw the liberalisation movement under Alexander Dubček as a sign of the way forward. He thought that this was going to be socialism with a human face. And then when the Soviet tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia and, and put down that, that uprising, he was absolutely appalled. When he decided to betray the Soviet Union, um, at what point in his career was he and why was he such a potentially important asset to MI6? Again, it, it's, it's, it's a question that has multiple answers because, again, it didn't happen in one moment. He was uh, serving in Denmark. It was his second posting in Denmark. It was 1972. And the Brits and the, and the Danish intelligence service had already flagged up Gordievsky as a, as a potential recruit because there were various things that he'd done and that there was a defector, a Czech defector, that had reported that Oleg was not quite the kind of straight KGB kind of yes man that he appeared to be on the outside. So, so he'd already been spotted. Um, and he was, over a very long period, very elaborate, a long, complicated dance, he was recruited by a rather brilliant, very formidable MI6 officer in, in Copenhagen. Uh, called Richard Bromhead, who sort of pulled him in very, very slowly. And, and Oleg was a huge catch. Um, at that point, he, he wasn't hugely senior. He was, I think, at that point, a major in the KGB. But he had access as, as the sort of political officer, the KGB's political officer in Copenhagen, to an enormous amount of material, which he began to systematically mine for MI6. And so every week or so, he would slip out at lunchtime from the um, the residentura, the KGB residentura, with in his pocket the microfilms that were sent every week in diplomatic bag um, from Moscow with instructions and, and reports for the KGB 
officers in Copenhagen. And he would hand these over to his MI6 officer, his case officer, who would copy them using a special um, machine that had been sort of created by Hanslope Park, which is where the MI6 technology is, is sort of sorted out. Um, and, and this all had to happen within the space of about 40 minutes uh, because Oleg could not be seen to be away for longer than that. And the longer he was away, the more likely it was that his colleagues would spot that the microfilms were missing. So it was real, it was high-tension stuff, and the stakes were incredibly high. Had he been discovered, what kind of fate would have awaited him? Well, what they call in Russian Vishnaya Mira, the ultimate punishment. I mean, this is one of the great differences, really, between, you know, the spies that we're familiar with on the British side, the Philbys and the Maclean's and the Burgesses. I mean, the most that they were facing was potentially a trial, but probably not even that. I mean, it would have been a bit of an embarrassment to the British, British establishment and they'd have been sort of shooed away. If Gordievsky had been caught, no matter where he was in the world, the special uh, directorate of the KGB, which was responsible for sort of kidnapping uh, and that sort of thing, would have got hold of him. They would have drugged him. They would have wrapped him in bandages, put him on a plane, taken him back to Moscow, where in the Lubyanka he would have been interrogated, tortured and then executed. I mean, for him, this was a matter of life and death. After his posting in Scandinavia, he then went back to Russia. And at this point, I believe MI6 kind of let him lie fallow for quite a long period of time. So why was it that they did that? It was a brilliant decision. I mean, it's very counterintuitive. I mean, here they were with a really active, clever, senior, willing spy deep within the sort of Kremlin machine. The temptation was to exploit him, was to get him when he was in Moscow to sort of, you know, find out what he knew, to meet him regularly. But MI6 made a brilliant calculation. They realised that, that it was just too dangerous to do that. The level of surveillance in Moscow was so intense. Every MI6 officer there, every diplomat, was under constant KGB surveillance. And they knew that the life expectancy of spies within the Soviet Union, indeed in, in the Soviet bloc, was very short because it was almost impossible to do. And so they decided that they wouldn't contact Gordievsky. They would leave him... To, to get on with it, with an understanding that if he was ever sent abroad again, and it was quite likely that he would eventually be sent abroad again, then contact would be remade. So they couldn't contact Oleg when he was in Moscow, but he could contact them. They set up a system whereby, if he needed to, he could make contact. He could, you know, there would be somebody waiting at a particular point with a particular set of signals on a regular basis. And if Oleg turned up there, he could pass a message. So he had a way of contacting them. They had no way of contacting him. His next posting was actually here in Britain, which clearly was very fortuitous for MI6 to have him so nearby. How did he engineer that transfer? Well, that, it was, again, a brilliant move on his part, and indeed on MI6. I mean, when he left Copenhagen to go back to Moscow, his case officer said to him, look, if you can get into the British section of the KGB, you're more likely to be sent to Britain, and then we can really ramp this case up. So Oleg learnt English. I mean, he's a brilliant linguist, and, and, and the KGB course to learn English was supposed to take three years. He did it in about six months. Um, and he brilliantly inveigled his way into the British section, uh, which meant that he had access. First of all, it meant he had access to the files that the KGB had on the British agents that had been running over the years. But it, it increased, strongly increased the likelihood that he would eventually be sent to Britain. I mean, it's one of the sort of odder aspects of this story that the KGB didn't spot that 
Oleg seemed, having been a Scandinavian expert, suddenly appeared to want to be a British expert. They didn't kind of think, well, that's a little strange that he's suddenly learning a language. He's already got all these languages already. He was just wafted in. And sure enough, then he was sent to Britain for the first time. One aspect of your book, which has actually got a lot of press coverage, is something that he saw in the KGB files, which was a reference to Michael Foote being some kind of paid informant. And I know there's been a lot of press coverage about this. I'd be quite interested to know from your point of view exactly what did he see about Michael Foote and how much credence do you give that story? One needs to be very, very careful about the Michael Foote because what we have here is really a question of nomenclature. It comes down to how you define um, these these sorts of elements. Oleg Gordievsky came across a file labelled Boot, which was Michael Foote's codename, KGB codename. On the cover of these files, the word agent had been sort of scrawled out and confidential contact written in. Now, those are two very different things in KGB descriptions. An agent is somebody who knows that they're working with the KGB, who is usually paid, who is a willing informant. A confidential contact could be anything from somebody who's just a, a, a sort of friendly face to somebody who is knowingly colluding, and it covers a whole space. So it appears that Michael Foote had been an agent in the KGB sense and then had become a confidential contact. But what the files showed... Gordievsky, was that starting back in 1949, Foote had had a series of meetings with the KGB, not just one or two chance encounters, but dozens of meetings over a pretty long period. These meetings ended in 1968, when after the Prague Spring, Foote had nothing more to do with Soviet intelligence. And he was paid a considerable amount of money. I mean, Oleg describes how the entries on this ledger show exactly how much money was passed over to to Foote on these various occasions. Um, And it amounts to what would have been the equivalent today of about £37,000. So it is not an inconsiderable amount. Now, what does this make Michael Foote? Well, did he know, in fact, that these were KGB agents that he was meeting? Uh, If he didn't know they were KGB that was pretty naive on his part. I mean, who did he think they were, for goodness sake? They were passing useful information to him, things that he could put in his speeches, things that he could write about in Tribune. What were they getting from him? Well, they were getting useful... I mean, he was he was passing on gossip, really. You know, what was happening in the Labour Party? What was happening in the trade union movement? What policies were Labour adopting? And at a critical period in history, those were all things that were extremely useful to the KGB. So... Was he a spy? Was he a traitor? No. You know, that's much too strong a word. Was he knowingly colluding with a foreign power for money? Yes, I think he was. So, you know, the right wing will say, this is proof that Foote was a sort of traitor to his country. And the left says, this is a disgraceful smear on a, on a you know, an upright patriotic citizen. Of course, neither of those things is true. The, the fact is that Foot in historically sits somewhere in the middle of that. Um, and I've, I hope I've left it to readers to make their own judgment on Michael Foot. I mean, he's a complicated figure in British history. But my conclusion um, is that, I mean, it's a very good Russian phrase invented by Lenin, in fact, um, which is sort of literally useful idiot. Uh, and that is somebody who, who really can be manipulated by the Soviet uh, propaganda machine, somebody who just goes along with it. My conclusion is that Michael Foote was useful to the KGB, uh, but his contacts with them were completely idiotic. And now the implications of this are potentially huge because Michael Foote 
admittedly, sometime after these incidents took place, Michael Foote was the leader of the opposition, was potentially going to be the next prime minister. I mean, the Conservative government was struggling at times in the early 1980s. Were the KGB planning to make any use of this information? Well, that's a very good question and one that we can't actually answer. And we don't know. Was there, was there a sort of plan that at some point they would use leverage on, on foot? I'd be stunned if they didn't. I mean, that's how they operated. I mean, that's partly why they did this sort of stuff. But, yes, in 1982... You know, uh, Foote was looking, it seems odd now, but, you know, he was quite a powerful figure. Um, and actually, these revelations that, that Gordievsky brought back about Agent Boot posed a real problem for MI6. I mean, there's a slightly weird theory going around that somehow it was part of an MI6 plot to bring down Foot. On the contrary, I mean, MI6 was appalled when it got this really dangerous piece of incendiary political information because they knew that in the wrong hands, this could be used to make Foot look like a full-blown KGB spy, which he wasn't. And so they had a real problem. They had to decide what to do with this kind of lump of political explosive. And what they decided to do with it was nothing. I mean, they passed it to MI5. MI5 passed it to the Cabinet Secretary, Robert Armstrong, who had to decide whether or not this was information that, that could be passed on to Margaret Thatcher, you know, who was going to be running against Foote in the election. And he brilliantly, in my view, decided, nope, this, this is too hot to handle. We have to just keep this under wraps and hope that Foote doesn't win the election, because if he does... I mean, and there were contingency plans within MI6 to inform the Queen that, it, you know, if it had come to that, if Foote had won the election, there was a potential constitutional crisis here, precisely for the reasons you describe. The KGB would have had a very useful piece of ammunition there. And now I suppose it's probably only fair at this point to say that when some of these claims emerged in the 90s, Michael Foote did win a libel action. So what do you feel like your research has added that strengthens the initial claims? Well, I mean, there are... Two very simple answers to that. I mean, the first thing that strengthens it is that there's a huge amount more detail in here about what was actually in those foot files. And there's a lot of corroborative information that, that, that shows that actually this was a much bigger thing um, and a much more extensive, a much longer relationship than was alleged in, in 96. The other thing is that it is, you know, the, the substance of it is confirmed by MI6. You know, every single one of the MI6 officers that I spoke to said, yep, this is, this is the information... That we got, it came, of course, from a single source. We're not going to have access to the KGB file on Michael Foote anytime soon. So yes, that is that is where it comes from. But not one of those officers had any reason to think that Oleg was telling anything other than the unvarnished truth. And his record shows that Oleg Oleg is a, was and is a trained intelligence officer. He doesn't make things up. He had no reason to, to have an axe to grind against Michael Foote. He really didn't. He barely knew who Michael Foote was when he came back, but he realised that this was an important piece of information. So the idea that this is some sort of made-up plot is, is frankly completely wrong. And so then Gordievsky does come to Britain, and at this point, what level of information is he able to provide to MI6 in his new posting? He brings two things. One is that he comes with a sort of diary from Moscow, which is that he's been through all the files. And so he and he has an extraordinary memory, Oleg. I mean, he has deliberately and he was actually trained to do this in school 101 in the KGB spy school to, to memorise documents. And so he came back with all of this stuff floating around in his head, which he which he unloaded on MI6. And it was the biggest operational download in MI6 history. He told them everything he could remember. And he went through 
debriefing after debriefing after debriefing. And he was one of those people who could sort of remember more every time he did it again, um, rather than going over what he'd already said. So it was a sort of a creating process. So that was what he brought with him. But once in post in the KGB station in, in London, he had access to everything that the political section was doing. So that was that was the, the information on who the KGB considered to be targets, who they were after, who they were trying to recruit, and also active measures. You know, I mean, we, we think that fake news is something that happens in 2018. It was happening then. You know, they were, you know, in the run-up to the election here, they were trying to plant false information. They were trying to slew the election. They were trying to find useful people who might be able to push the political line that, that the Kremlin was ordering. So, you know, he was right at the heart, hot centre of all of that. How able were MI6 to use this information? Because clearly there was a risk of him being compromised if too many of the things he revealed were acted on at the same time. I mean, this is the central conundrum of good intelligence. If it's very, very good, if it's revealing, you know, high-level, you know, penetration, you can't use it. Because the moment you act on it, or you can't use it directly. The moment you act on it, it reveals that, that somebody is revealing secrets. This had been a long-term problem with not a problem, but it's a you know it's a it's a it's a problem born of virtue, if you like. But because Oleg had identified a lot of Soviet agents operating in Scandinavian countries, this precursor to his, his arrival in Britain created a problem because had they all been arrested, had they all been swept up, the KGB would have known immediately that there was a mole inside the KGB. Mm, all the Scandinavian spies have disappeared. Who's in the Scandinavian office? Who would have had access to these things? You know, they would have burned their own source. You know, it was the central issue with the Gordievsky case was how much of this stuff to act on and how much of it to reveal to allies. Who, who should be told what and when was the central issue of this, of this story. So one of the most important incidents that he was involved in was the aftermath of the Abel Archer scare. And in the book, you suggest that he actually here played a role in helping to reduce Cold War tensions. So I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, spies very rarely change the course of history. I mean, they they make us safer if they work well. They make us more unsafe if they don't work well. They oil the wheels of traditional diplomacy. They're very important. But do they actually affect policy? Do they actually change the world we live in? Seldom. This is one of those cases when a spy did. Oleg alerted the West to the fact that the Andropov KGB and then the Andropov um, regime in Russia was genuinely terrified that the West was planning a nuclear first strike. I mean, it was paranoid and it was wrong, but it was nonetheless genuinely held. And they looked at the Abel Archer case, which was a, which was a military deployment in Eastern Europe, and they believed in some circles in the Kremlin that this was a precursor to nuclear war. It wasn't just a test that it might actually be the first step towards it. Now, of course, that creates the situation where if if the Soviet Union feels there's going to be a first strike, it will try and get the punch in first. So, so Oleg was able to alert the West that this was this was genuine. This was not some ruse. This wasn't a double bluff. And the decision was taken in both in Downing Street and and in the Oval Office that that actually the rhetoric about the evil empire, the kind of pushing of the Soviet Union, was probably actually creating a situation that, that would lead to nuclear war. And so, actually, they began to ratchet down the tensions. So it's one of those occasions when, you know, the information from a single agent actually begins to have an effect on global policy. 
And then on a related note, he was also instrumental in improving the relations between Thatcher and Gorbachev because he kind of was informing both sides without yeah. them realising I mean, again, it's a situation unique in history. I mean, when Gorbachev made his first visit to Britain uh, in 1984, uh, he asked the KGB station, or rather the KGB centre, asked the KGB station in London to prepare documents, briefing documents, so that Gorbachev would know what he ought to say to Thatcher. And Gordievsky was one of those who was drawing up those documents. He was responsible for advising uh, Gorbachev on, on how to deal with the Brits. Well, of course, what Gorbachev never knew was that those documents were actually being written by MI6. So Gordievsky was passing on. So in a way, he was kind of choreographing the whole thing. He was telling Gorbachev what he ought to say to Thatcher, but he was also advising through MI6 Thatcher on what she should say to Gorbachev. And so when they emerged from these meetings... Um, and, and it was the mood music was all wonderful, and, and Thatcher said, this is a man we can do business with. Well, that was partly because the business had been rigged by Oleg Gordievsky. And during his time in London, prior to his eventual betrayal discovery, how close did he come to being found out? Well, there was one terrifying moment when it appeared that he was in real trouble, and that happened when a very disaffected MI5 officer called Michael Bettany dropped a note, most eccentrically, through the front door of the head of the KGB station's home, offering to spy for the Soviet Union. The Russians initially rejected this as being some sort of MI5, MI6 provocation. They thought it was most unlikely that the man didn't reveal his real name, although he did produce a real document. And the head of the KGB station showed that document to Oleg Gordievsky. And Gordievsky, at his next meeting with his MI6 handlers, said, what's going on here? You guys are doing a provocation. Why is somebody pretending, you know, from within MI5 to be offering to spy? And his case officer went white and said, mm, no, we're not. There is no provocation underway. This is... And they had a problem. They realised at that moment there was an MI5 mole. There was someone within MI5 who was willing to kind of bleed secrets to, to the KGB. And, of course, that represented an enormous danger to Oleg Gordievsky, because if that character knew about Gordievsky, he was blown. On the other hand, the mere fact that whoever this spy was, and it was Michael Bettany, had, had offered in this way meant that he couldn't know about Gordievsky, because, of course, he would never have told the head of the KGB, because he would know that it would go to Gordievsky, and therefore he'd be exposed. So, so then began a mole hunt within MI5 to try and find out who it was, but it was a moment of extreme peril. Uh, for Gordievsky. And of course, in the end, another moment of triumph for him because he alerted MI5 and MI6 to the fact that there was a mole and they set out on this mole hunt and they caught him. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And then eventually he actually was betrayed and discovered and through quite an unusual circuitous route. So I wonder if you could explain how that happened. Yes. Uh, as I explained before, the material from, from Gordieski was being passed all the way up the chain and it was going all the way to the CIA and from the CIA it was going to the Oval Office. But MI6 was always disguising where it came from. And that is fair trade in espionage world. If you have a source and you're sharing it with your allies, you don't say where it comes from. You, you disguise the source because you don't want the security of that source to be compromised. Well, now, the CIA doesn't really like not knowing where things come from. You know, it is a global intelligence agency. It's the richest intelligence agency in the world. And so secretly, the CIA began to investigate and it set up a little task force and then eventually quite a large task force to try to find out who the Brits had, who was this anonymous source that they were passing information from. And, and in one way, you can sort of sympathise with them. You know, they were having to take information to Reagan. And if Reagan said, well, where does this come from? They'd had to say, well, we don't really know, sir. It comes from the Brits and we trust it. That's not a good look if you're the head of the CIA. You don't want to say, mm, actually, you know, Mr. President, we don't really know where this comes from. And so over a long period of time, they worked it out. I mean, it was a brilliant piece of sleuthing. They analysed all the information that had come from Britain. They worked out who was where and which people were suspected. And they came up with a name. They worked out that it was Oleg. And they gave him a code name. They, they called him Agent Tickle. And I think it was very satisfying uh, for the CIA to have sort of dug out, you know, the British. They didn't tell the Brits they were doing it. And they certainly didn't tell the Brits they'd worked it out. And it still is a source of some rancour, this, within MI6. I mean, the CIA broke the rules. You're not supposed to investigate your friends. But, of course, what the CIA didn't know was that its head of counterintelligence, a man called Aldrich James, was just about to go over to the KGB. He was just on the point of selling everything he had for money to the KGB. And so then the last part of your book relates this incredible story of how Gordievsky is summoned back to Russia, investigated by the KGB, and then had this unbelievable escape. But one question that kept coming up to me when reading this is, why did the KGB not either imprison him or execute him. They left him living in a kind of miserable existence, but they left him free, which seems like a, a big mistake and not very KGB-like behaviour. Well, and funnily enough, it actually is rather KGB-like behaviour because although we, you know, they were brutal, they were tough as hell, they were, there was no mercy there, and they had strong grounds not just for suspecting Gordievsky once he was back in Moscow. I mean, they had chapter and verse from Ames, you know, by the middle of June. He was summoned back in May. By the middle of June, Ames had confirmed 
um, that it was Gordievsky, that Gordievsky was an MI6 plant. Why did they let him go semi-free? I mean, he was semi-free. He was under surveillance the whole time they were watching him. Why did they allow this? Well, two reasons, really. One is that they wanted to catch him in the act. They wanted him to make contact with his MI6 handlers and then they would catch them in flagrante, as it were, and then there would be a massive diplomatic meltdown. That was that was the big prize for the KGB because that would be, you know, it would be humiliating for Britain to be caught in the act. And so they were waiting for that. The other answer is complacency. I mean, nobody had ever escaped from the Soviet Union, particularly not a KGB officer under 24-hour surveillance. They just didn't think it was possible, I think. And they kept an eye on him. And the third reason, I said there were two, there were actually three, the KGB was an oddly legalistic organisation. They wanted to have a case. They wanted to have a military tribunal that would that would present evidence and then Oleg could be tried and executed. And funnily enough, when he was being interrogated, one of the things that Oleg did, which was in hindsight very clever, is that he accused his accusers of behaving like Stalinist purgers. He said, you know, you are behaving like the, the people of 1938. You're accusing an innocent man of not having to... And that deeply offended the man who was running this investigation, a man called Viktor Budanov, who was himself a lawyer and who, who took personal offence at the idea that he didn't have evidence. And so they were looking for evidence. And then the story of his escape is its just incredible. I mean, the book goes into it in great detail, but I wonder if you could just give us a summary of how on earth this man under KGB surveillance managed to get out of the Soviet Union. Well, there was a long-standing, for seven years, there was an escape plan that had been in place. It was called Operation Pimlico. And it sounds like something that John le Carré would write, because it, w- it would be triggered by Oleg had to stand on a particular street corner on a particular day of the week holding, believe it or not, a Safeway bag from the British supermarket. This would be the indication that he had to get out. The acknowledgement signal from MI6 would be that the MI6 officers who policed this site for seven years every Tuesday night, whether or not Oleg was in town or not, they watched this site because, of course, they were under surveillance and if they changed their patterns of behaviour, that would have been spotted by by the KGB. So they had to, even though they knew he wasn't there, they had to, they had to do the same thing which meant going down to this bread shop and being there. And sort of, anyway, so that was how it was triggered. The, the second stage of it, well, it would be acknowledged by the MI6 officer walking past the man with the Safeway bag, who they'd never seen, by the way. They had very little idea what he looked like. They would walk past him and eat a British chocolate bar, either a Mars bar or a Kit Kat. Now, I mean, again, if you made this up in fiction, people would say, nah, that's completely unbelievable. Um, but that is what happened. And... He flew his signal, and the second stage of the operation was that he had to get to a particular lay-by south of the border with Finland. Uh, He had to throw off surveillance, which he was very good at. Um, At the same time, MI6 had to drive diplomatic cars, cars with diplomatic plates, up to the same lay-by. They, too, had to throw off KGB surveillance. They would then bundle Oleg into the back of the car, cover him in a heat-reflective blanket so that he didn't pick up the infrared cameras as they went through the border. And then they had to hope that the Soviet border guards would follow convention and the Soviet sniffer dogs at the border would not detect Oleg. They would follow convention and allow the diplomatic cars through without being searched. I mean, it was an enormous gamble. I won't give it away for your listeners what actually happened, but the last moments of it come down to seconds. 
And do you think it was only because Gordievsky was such an experienced spy that he was able to do something like this? Could any other person have got out in the way he did? No, I don't think anyone else... And indeed, I don't think a lesser intelligence agent would have been able to do it. I mean, Oleg managed to throw off surveillance, not once, not twice, but four times he managed to evade the people following him, who, in a very Soviet way, didn't report that they'd lost Oleg. I mean, the key to surveillance evasion is, is to convince the people who are watching you that they've made a mistake, not that you've deliberately thrown off surveillance. So... He was very good at it. I mean, there's a word in, in Russian spy parlance, proverka, which means literally dry cleaning. I mean, he was a champion dry cleaner. When he gets out of the Soviet Union, he then arrives back in Britain. What is the reaction, firstly, in Britain to the fact that this major asset has defected and then also in the Soviet Union when they find out that he's gone? In Britain, there is initially quiet and later very loud jubilation. I mean, they have here somebody who is not only just a, you know, a very prized intelligence asset. They can now use all the accumulated intelligence that has been built up in the Gordievsky case over the last decade. Everything can now be, can now be used. And it's, it's, it's of huge value. This is all the things that they couldn't reveal before because it would have blown the source. Well, the source was out and now it was open season. So it was an espionage triumph. In some ways, it was a diplomatic triumph, although it was a real problem because, of course, you know, the relations with the Soviet Union had been warming. Things had been getting better, and suddenly there was this enormous, crucial defection that was doing huge damage to the KGB. The KGB was livid, and indeed, intelligence circles in Russia remained pretty enraged by this story because it, it you know, it completely wrong-footed them. And of course, inevitably, as is the, the Soviet and Russian way, they began to pump out sort of disinformation stories that said, oh, we always knew Oleg was a, was a double A. We let him go. We didn't really want to keep him. Um, it wasn't it wasn't Ames, it was someone else. Who'd been... So a whole gust of sort of disinformation started. But the memory of Gordievsky still lingers in, in, in Russia. You know, he, he was the most important spy of the Cold War and he, he managed to do something that no one else had ever done before. One aspect of his life that you also cover in the book is his personal life and the fact that he'd never revealed his espionage activities to his wife and how this eventually caused a big rift within the family and also he had this terrible decision to make about whether or not his family should leave with him. Do you think basically his work was just incompatible in the end with having a kind of stable family life? This is the emotional core of the book. This is, in a way, the real human element of all of this because Oleg had never told Leila, his wife, what he was. She was the daughter of two KGB officers. She was a, and, you know, was a remarkable woman, but she was a Soviet citizen. You know, she was loyal to the Soviet Union. She'd been brought up in that world. He never told her anything. They had a very close relationship, except that there was a kind of deception at the core of it. Um, and Oleg himself is very honest about this. He, he wonders whether this meant that he could never really have a proper, full, honest, emotional relationship with anybody. Leila was absolutely st- Staggered, shattered when he defected. I mean, she was on holiday with their two young daughters. Unbeknown to her, Oleg had 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 to make a terrible decision because MI6 was ready to take all of them out. I mean, there were two cars coming. They were planning to uh, inject the little girls with a soporific that would... I mean, I always thought that was the wildest part of this project. I mean, they could have killed them. I mean, that could have ended it really badly. Um, but they were ready to try it. And, they, you know, one child and one adult would be bundled into the back of each boot of each car. And Oleg had to decide whether to tell his wife and try and persuade her to come with him. And in the end, he decided that it was just too dangerous, that it would have imperiled the whole escape plan and that they would all have been captured and that it was putting his family at too much risk. But it was a terrible decision to have to make. And in the end, Leila was 
brought out. I mean, it, it took the sort of fall of communism for it to happen six years later, six years. And by that point, you know, the relationship was, I suspect, completely doomed. It didn't last. Oleg Goldieski is still alive today, and I believe you've done a large amount of interviewing with him for the book. I'm just interested to know what your impressions of him as a man are. I've got to know Oleg pretty well over the last, gosh, five years now. I mean, and I've done dozens of interviews with him over over that period. He's a very remarkable man. You know, he's tough. His memory is extraordinarily acute. Uh, he's highly trained. I mean, he's now in, in his 80th year, you know, and his memory's not quite not what it was, but he's an extraordinary man. He can be quite tricky to deal with. He can be quite um, argumentative. He can be occasionally quite manipulative. He can be quite rude at times. But I have huge respect for him. He's a lonely man in some ways. He, you know, he, he lives alone. He is under very tight security. You know, he lives under a different name. His neighbours have no idea who he is. You know, it is a, it's an odd sort of life. There is a price to pay for this for this stuff. You know, it is these are not stories of black and white, moral good and evil. I admire Oleg hugely. I think what he did was extraordinary. He is one of the bravest people I have ever met, uh, but he's also one of the loneliest. And there is a cost. There is a cost associated with this, and it's it's important to remember that. So one interesting aspect of the book, which you do touch on later on, is the fact that you clearly have a huge admiration for Gordievsky, but... He, what he did was similar to what people like Kim Philby did, what people like Aldous Ames did. To some, some degree, they, they all betrayed their country. But what do you see as the important difference with what Gordievsky did from what these other people did? Betrayal lies at the heart of espionage. If you are an MI6 operative, what you're trying to do is to persuade foreign nationals to do what Oleg did. I mean, betrayal is such a loaded word, isn't it? Treachery is such a loaded word. But to, you know, to come over to the other side, that's what you're doing. And so what makes Gordievsky different? Well, I mean, what he was actually doing is, as you say, similar in a way to what Ames and, and Philby and the others were doing. He was identifying uh, people who had been recruited by Soviet intelligence in the West and they were eventually rounded up. Now, there are two differences, really. Oleg made an ideological decision. He decided that, that the Soviet regime he was serving was a criminal, brutal, philistine organisation that was lying to its people. So he made a choice. So, And he, he decided that... The West, for all its flaws, and he was he's not a sort of wide-eyed, he's no fool, Oleg. I mean, he knows that we don't live in a perfect system, but he believed that he was working for the wrong side. And who is to gainsay him that? Who is to say that actually that wasn't a, a really courageous decision to realise that actually, you know, Kim Philby was working, and I think Kim Philby realised this when he finally wound up in, in Soviet Moscow, that he actually the regime was a massive propaganda fraud. You know, the Stalinist system was brutal and, and illiberal and a repressive regime. So there's that difference, which I think is quite a strong one. And the other one is the stakes, which we mentioned at the beginning. I mean, the people that Oleg identified as being Soviet agents were, many of them, arrested. They were tried under due process. They were sentenced and they served sentences and some of them are now at liberty again. Whereas the other side, the people that Ames identified and the people that Philby identified, they were rounded up and they were executed. So there is a difference there too. One aspect of this book that's quite different from a number of the other books you've written is that Gordievsky and most of the other protagonists are still alive nowadays. So what would you see as both the, the advantages and the challenges of working on a story which is still in living memory for lots of people? 
Yes, this is new territory for me. And it's been fascinating to be able to talk to all the, the MI6 officers who were involved in the case. And memory is, is both a wonderful and a fickle material to work with because obviously people have different memories. Over the course of time, those memories tend to become sort of rather solidified, as it were. You know, if you've told a story a few times, you know, it, it becomes your truth. And, of course, one then has to make a judgment about which these different recollections you want to believe and which not that they are lying in any way at all but people do remember things in different ways and but that's also the great advantage because you get the pattern of memory you can you know people can tell you what it smelled like on a particular day what flowers were blooming by the side of the road and that for a non-fiction narrative non-fiction writer is absolute gold dust because you can say with authority this is what it felt like this is what it looked like this is what happened so it's been it's been an interesting process for me, and I and I've I've really enjoyed the fact that I can I can sort of dig down into people's memories, and for many of these people, it is the first time they've ever spoken about this. You know that the oath of silence, the oath of sort of confidentiality, that they take, is a profound and fundamental one, and for many of them, this was an, an uncomfortable experience, I think, to begin with, and then latterly, uh, I hope, a very cathartic and useful one. Now the events you cover in this book. Most of them occurred 30, 40 years ago. But in light of current political events, do you see them still having a resonance for today? Yes. I mean, huge, and particularly in the light of what has happened in, in Salisbury in, in recent times and the ongoing investigation into that. I mean, you know, what it does is it throws into relief, really, that the, the KGB methods, the way Oleg and others were trained, are not so very different from the way the Russian state sees the world today. Vladimir Putin is an ex-KGB officer, and as Vladimir Putin says, you never leave the KGB. That was Ben McIntyre. The Spy and the Traitor, the greatest espionage story of the Cold War, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. And in the US, it's also available, published by Crown. And that is about it for today, but we'll be back on Thursday to speak to Philippe Sands about a Nazi on the run. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.